So this morning, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, looking at the blessedness of the blessing of understanding God's plan. The blessing of understanding God's plan. People are not always interested in history, but they are almost everyone is interested in the future. You ever notice that? There's lots of talk about the future. People want to know what the future is. Even if it's just like, oh, is it going to rain today? Or some of you are thinking, who's going to win the Super Bowl today? But more serious things, like will I have a job at the end of the year? Will my health hold out another year? Uh, Will the wars in Ukraine and in Gaza spill over into the next world war? Uh, Will we have a fair presidential election this year? Will the uber-rich oligarchs that meet in Davos every year finally carry out their plan to micromanage every aspect of our lives? Will I really be forced to buy an electric car? There's lots of questions like this that we can ask that we really don't know about the future. But as Christians, we are blessed in that God has told us the future. We do know what the future will bring. Now, we don't know all the little details between now and the end, but we do know how the, how the end ends because God has revealed it to us in his word. And sometimes as Christians, we can get caught up so much in like all the details of, well, is this, is this going to happen? Or is that going to happen? Or is this going to happen? That we become totally distracted for the mission that God has given us right here and right now. And there's a sense in which God just wants us to know the future. He's not going to lay out all the details. He hasn't laid out all the details, but he wants us to know the end so that we'll be just rest assured. No need to be anxious. And he'll carry on the mission that he's given us to do as a church in the meantime. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, we hit a portion of scripture that I think part of, part of this section, it's, it's a little complicated. The grammar is a little, little hard. It's a little hard to track what Paul is saying. So I want you to see that ultimately Paul is, is giving to us, he's revealing to us the blessing that God has revealed the end to us. He's revealed his plan to us. And that's a massive blessing. So this morning we're going to see three unearned blessings that God graciously gives his children so that they can understand his plan for the ages, which results in the praise of his glorious grace. This whole section, uh, I'll, I'll be a bit of a, of a broken record, so to speak, to use an older terminology. Um, maybe a scratch CD sometimes does the same thing. Keep playing the same tune. Well, this section plays the same tune as to what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to stir us to praise God for his blessings. So we'll keep coming back to that. Now, before we dig into these uh, verses, let's just read the word of God together. Ephesians chapter one. And I like to read the paragraph together. And that flows from verse 3 to verse 14, helping us to keep the big picture in mind. So we'll read that again together this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. 
by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. You are blessed by God with his gift of wisdom and insight. We see this in verse in verse 8. You are blessed by God's gift of wisdom and insight. Now, as, you, as we jump into verse 8, we have to realize that it's, it is part of the uh, of a long sentence that's flowing together, so we're breaking it apart a little bit to try to understand it, but it flows from everything that's come be- before it, and it's, and it's leading to what's coming after it. Uh, notice how verse 8 begins. It begins with that relative pronoun, which, which. So when you, be, when you read something like that, that relative pronoun is just saying it's, it's pointing. It relates to something else. So you're looking at what it relates to. And what does it relate to? It relates to what came before it, which is in verse 7. His grace. So if we're, if we're flowing, understanding this, this, this verse in verse 8, it's his grace which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight. Um, his grace, so abundant to, to flow to us in wisdom and insight. Now, what does the word abound mean? This is, this is very interesting. Again, it flows with the whole passage. The whole passage is about God's amazing blessings that he's poured out upon us in so many different ways. Well, this word to abound means to cause something to exist in abundance. When you have an abundance, what do you have? More than you need. And that's exactly what Paul is expressing here. That's exactly what he's saying. To have, it means to have such an abundance as to have more than it's sufficient. To have more than enough, to have an overabundance. And we see the word used in this way in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 17. You remember that when the son goes away and then everything kind of washes out for him, he runs out of money, he ends up doing what? Feeding pigs, swine, something Jews shouldn't have anything to do with. We're not commanded not to have anything to do with, but that's what he was doing. And he longed, he was so hungry that he longed to eat pig's food. Have you ever been that hungry? I know I have not been. By God's grace. But he was so hungry, he was ready to eat pig slop. But then he remembered something. Luke 15, 17 tells us this. He says, how many of my father's men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. That term more than enough, that means an abundance. More than enough. Like, even even his father's servants had 
more than enough bread. Why? Because his father was a generous master. He provided more than enough food. He didn't starve his servants. He provided more than enough. So that's the same term that Paul's using here in Ephesians. He's saying that, that our God has provided more than enough grace, a superabundance, more than we really need, more certainly a lot more than we deserve because we don't deserve any of that. And, and that flows to us, abounds to us, through in, in giving us wisdom and insight. Now, I guess a reminder that the us here applies to all true believers. Paul's writing, so obviously he include, he's including himself in this, and he's writing to the Ephesians. But he just wasn't writing to them as an isolated church. He was writing scripture, and he knew that. So this applies to every born-again believer, every genuine believer. This grace has, God's grace has abounded to you. In, in more ways than you actually need. It's superabounding grace. And it's from God. Now this verse. Um, remember that in verse 3. Begins with Paul telling us about this overwhelming blessedness. He, and in fact he just the summary statement is. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in, in Christ. Everything. That includes everything. All of God's blessings. And then Paul begins detailing what some of these blessings are. Well, First he tells us that you've been chosen. Speaking of election, he, he he chose you before the foundation of the world. But then he tells you that you that he has predestined you to adoption as sons. So that's the second blessing he enumerates. The third blessing he enumerates is, is the fact that you have redemption. That in Christ, it, through the, the death and the resurrection of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, we have redemption. So that's the third blessing. And the fourth blessing that he actually enumerates is what we're getting at today. This wisdom and insight to understand God's plan, where he's going. And and that's what he wants us to see. Um, So in verse 8, Paul adds one more specific blessing that God gives us in his grace. And that is wisdom and insight. God's grace abounded to us in wisdom and insight. Now, this isn't referring to how God acts with wisdom and insight. Everything God does is with wisdom and insight. All wisdom flows from him. And there's never a time where he doesn't do anything without wisdom. So this isn't talking about God's wisdom and how he caused his grace to flow to us in wisdom and insight. This is talking about God's grace and blessing of giving us wisdom and insight. Now, what is what is wisdom? Well, wisdom in a general sense, is the capacity to understand and function accordingly. The wis- It's the capacity to understand and to function accordingly. It's not just knowledge. Knowledge is something that you could just say, you know the facts, but you may not ever act on them. Wisdom is, is, a, is the capacity not only to know, but then know how to act that out. How to do it. Not just how, but to do it. Uh, there, there is natural wisdom that enables men and women to understand the natural world and to benefit from that. You can look at a person and say, oh, that person's wise. You know, planning ahead is wise. They're prepared. You'd say that's, that is a form of earthly wisdom. For example, in Acts 7.22, we're told this, that, that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in words and deeds. And that's even speaking of him before the Lord really called him to lead Israel out of Egypt with all the miracles that, that the Lord did through the hand of Moses. 
So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of Egypt. I mean, the best education was afforded to Moses, and he benefited from that. That's an example of earthly wisdom. And that kind of wisdom is, is available to you based on your circumstances. Some, of, uh, some people don't have the benefit of that education. Others are afforded that, and that's all by the providence of God. But that's an example of earthly wisdom that we can benefit from. But then there is spiritual wisdom. Oh, I should say that earthly wisdom comes from our parents, key role. That's why Proverbs is written, help parents teach their children wisdom. Uh, wisdom comes from mentors. Wisdom comes from schools. And, uh, wisdom can come from education programs or apprentice programs. That's, that's wisdom. That's the earthly level wisdom. But then there is spiritual wisdom. And this is a, a wisdom that's transcendent, meaning that you can't learn about it just by observing. Right? A human being can't reveal these things to you. God has to reveal them to us. Uh, so the wisdom, there is a wisdom that only comes from God. And that's the wisdom that Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 1. And we see Paul uh, contrast the world's natural wisdom with God's wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you would just turn there and we'll, let's look at that together. So when Paul is speaking about Ephesians 1, he's saying there's, there's this blessing of wisdom. He's not, he's not merely referring to, uh, and he's not referring to the earthly level wisdom. So that, that is indeed a gift because that's, that's somewhat based on your parents and the opportunities you have for education or training. That's a gift, but that's not what Paul is talking about. Here he's speaking about spiritual wisdom. So for, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, we see the contrast of the world's natural wisdom with God's wisdom. For the, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is God speaking. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So there are those who are wise on this earth that God's saying, I'm, I'm going to set them aside. Right? And those who consider themselves to be clever, uh, that's another word for, for, for having wisdom. He's going to set, set them aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the foolish... Has, has Sorry, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wi in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 
so that just as it is written, let him who boast, boast in the Lord. So if you're saved in Christ this morning, you are in that description. Not many wise, not many noble, not many wealthy. In other words, you could say, why did God save us? Because you're part of the not many's. You were the best that he could choose to demonstrate his grace. Meaning the least deserving. Everybody else would, would just pass over you. If the world were choosing, they would fly over every, your whole life and ignore you. But God has chosen you to be a trophy of his grace. But the point here is, is to understand that this wisdom is something that comes from God. And, and in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, Paul is actually using uh, you know, the word wisdom at, at, sense, at, at times in a bit of our irony. Saying, he's saying the foolishness of God. Well, is, there any, is there any foolishness of God? Well, no. No, there's no, no foolishness of God. But he's using the term because that's what the world would say. The world would say the, the gospel is foolishness. So Paul is playing on that and he's saying the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world. So there's that contrast. So where do we get the wisdom that comes from God? It's from God. It is a gift. The fact that you have believed the gospel, that you have not walked away and said, oh, that's foolishness. That's nonsense to believe that a man was born of a virgin, uh, that a man could be God and man? If you believe that, it's because God has given you wisdom to believe that. And if you say that's foolishness, that's typical response of the world. That's worldly wisdom in operation. So that's wisdom. Wisdom is that ability to, 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 to capacity to understand and interact, do the right thing in the spiritual realm, to believe spiritual truths. Now what's insight? Insight refers to the ability to understand as a result of insight and wisdom. And you're looking at me like, okay, what's the difference between insight and wisdom? And I spent a lot of time studying that, and I came up empty. Um, it sounds a lot like wisdom. And the best the scholars can say is that insight has to do more on the practical side, and wisdom is more the intellectual. Although you can't draw a strict divider between these. There's no way to distinctly um, separate them from one another. And, and, and for good reason. These words flow together. It, it, wisdom and insight belong together. And, and we can learn a lot sometimes in how Greek words are used, how the meaning of them by looking at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So actually this word insight is only used twice in the New Testament, so it doesn't really help us too much. But we see, looking at Septuagint, that insight and wisdom, these two Greek words, are actually used a lot together. Proverbs 3, verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who obtains discernment. They're not exactly the same, but they are parallel and similar. Proverbs 3, 19. Yahweh, by wisdom, founded the earth. By discernment, he established the heavens. Proverbs 7, 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. Proverbs 8, 1. Does not wisdom call, and discernment give forth her voice? Again, a personification of wisdom, but sometimes called discernment. Same as the same Greek word that Paul uses in Ephesians 1, verse 8. 
in Proverbs 16, 16, how much better it is to acquire wisdom than fine gold. And to acquire understanding is to be chosen above silver. More valuable than, than the things that people typically value. These belong together. You cannot separate them. They're not exactly the same thing, but it's very difficult uh, to separate them and explain distinctly what one is versus the other. They flow together. God gives both. He doesn't just give wisdom. He gives wisdom and insight. And this is his gift. And and notice with me in verse 8, he says, all wisdom and insight. Now, that doesn't mean that you know everything. What it means is you have all the wisdom and insight that you need. All the wisdom and insight that you need. You're not lacking in anything, which fits in with the whole context of this passage. That God has provided a superabundance of his grace to give you everything you need and then some. He's not stingy in handing this out. Now, you might be here this morning uncertain of who Jesus Christ is. or You know he's a, a historical person, but you're not sure that he's really Lord. You're not sure that he's really God. You're not sure whether you should believe in him and trust him or not. Or you might be here this morning wanting Jesus as your savior. That's pretty cool. I I like to be saved. I don't want to go to hell. But but you are not at the place of submitting to him as your Lord. I realize there is no separating those two. Jesus is Lord and Savior. You cannot have him as Savior without having him as Lord. I call you just to, to ask the Lord for wisdom, to see these truths. James 1.5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given. Did you hear that promise? Ask the Lord for wisdom, and he will grant it. But James warns this, Let him ask in faith, doubting nothing. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed, By the wind, for that man ought not to expect he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So ask, and you shall receive, but ask in faith that he will supply what is needed. Now, to those believers here, I just paused to, to ask you to think about what God has given. You can take wisdom and insight for granted. And not give him thanks. You can be like like those who were where Jesus healed ten lepers, but only one came back to give thanks. And Jesus said, Where are the others? So we can take gifts like wisdom and insight for granted. And we don't want to be those who take it for granted. So give him thanks for the wisdom and insight that he has given you and, and use this as a springboard to, to praise him, to exalt him. So the first unearned blessing that God graciously gives you to understand his plan for the ages, resulting in his praise, the praise of his glorious grace, is the the blessing of wisdom and insight. And the second is this. You are blessed by God's revelation of his secret counsel. You see this from verse 9. You are blessed by God's revelation of his secret counsel. There, verse 9 says, He's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. So the wisdom and insight that God gives us factors into this. It it gives us the insight to understand. Uh, The making known to us is a a participle which is further describing the abounding of grace. 
In the abundance of God's grace, He is making known to us the mystery of His will. Um, Divine wisdom and insight are absolutely necessary and crucial, but it would do us no good if God didn't reveal Himself. If He gave you wisdom and insight to understand His Word, but you didn't have the Word, what would you understand? Nothing. You wouldn't understand Him. So these things go together. God needs to reveal Himself, but you need wisdom and insight to understand that revelation. So these, this is how these blessings work, work together and flow together. Now, what is it that Paul specifically identifies in verse 9 as the object of God's revelation? That is this, the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will. Now, we need to, to pause here on the word mystery because it's easy to confuse. When you think about a mystery in English, what do you think about? It's something that's like not solvable. Crime happens and it's a mystery. It's, you just don't, we never, never end up solving it. Or, um, but that's not what Paul had in mind here. That's not the Greek term at all for this. How it's used in the New Testament. A mystery is not something incomprehensible. It's not something unexplainable. It's not something that only a few Christians, um, have access to or a few Christians can comprehend. A mystery is not something vague and indefinite. There are mysterious things in the scriptures. Don't get me wrong. The, to a certain extent, the Trinity is a mystery, but the Trinity is never called a mystery. So that's what I'm trying to help you distinguish. There are certain things about the Trinity we can understand, but there's many aspects of like the inner workings of the Trinity. It's, it's a mystery. It's not revealed to us. But when, I, when the scriptures use the word mystery, it doesn't mean things that are incomprehensible. Like you and I will never comprehend fully the Trinity because God is God and we are create, you know, finite creatures. So there's a certain aspect of which there's always going to remain things we don't understand about God. So a mystery is not those things. A, a mystery is something once hidden, but now revealed. When Paul uses the word mystery, or even when Christ uses the word mystery, he's speaking about things that were hidden, but now revealed. Um, to those, particularly to those who are in Christ. Jesus speaks of the mystery in this sense in Matthew 13, 11. I'll just read that for you. Matthew, Matthew 13, 11. And the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Meaning to the, to the mass of crowds. And Jesus answered and said to them, he said to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. You see that? Know the mysteries of the kingdom. He said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm doing this to confuse you. No, he, that's not what he said. Now, it did confuse him at times, and he had, he had, uh, they had to ask him to explain those parables at times. But he says, to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been given. So, sometimes uh, people will, will, will tell you that the pastor should speak more in parables because it, it gives more stories and it helps people be more engaged. But that misses the full point of why Jesus told parables. Jesus told parables not to give nice stories so everybody would stay engaged mentally. But he taught in parables to reveal certain things to his disciples and to keep them hidden from others. Now, Harold Horner is a very, a very helpful commentary on Ephesians. He, he explains that according to Paul, a mystery is something known to God and is revealed by God to all believers, not restricted to the few. So I'll repeat that. A mystery is something known to God and revealed by God to all believers and not restricted to a few. Um, 
he adds then, in the New Testament, a mystery refers to something in ages past, hidden in God, and unable to be unraveled or understood by human ingenuity or study. It has now been revealed by the Holy Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, who in turn have made it manifest to everyone. So it's a secret counsel of God that he has chosen to make known by the apostles and the prophets. They in turn wrote it down and revealed it to us. And it is available to all. To all, all to, to Christians. An unbeliever can read the Bible, but they can't comprehend with wisdom and insight. So again, it's working with wisdom and insight. So if you think about Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, what is the mystery that Paul refers to there? Well, he says it's the mystery of his will. It's the mystery of his will. Now, in other places, Paul will speak of, use the word mystery in different ways. The word mystery is used to describe the gospel in a general sense. The, the mystery is used to speak of the union of Jews and Gentiles in one body. Right? That's spoken of as a mystery. And um, the relationship of Christ and the church is spoken of as a mystery in Ephesians 5, verse 32. We'll, we'll get to that eventually. Um, but in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8, he speaks about the mystery of his will. They, meaning it's something about God's will that was secret that he has now revealed that we can comprehend. And I, I just want to remind us that, that there's a lot we don't understand. But it's the things that has been revealed that God wants us to understand. He doesn't give us revelation to confuse us. He gives us revelation that we might understand it. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament when I don't know the answer to your questions. It says this, The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What has been revealed is what we are to know. There's a lot that hasn't been revealed that we don't know. Those are the secret things of God. Now, as we think about these secret things, um, remember that, again, revelation has to be given. An unbeliever can read the word of God, but they aren't going to understand the spiritual truths that those words represent. They aren't gonna, they're going to absorb them and take them in like a believer will. And we see Paul develop the, the relationship between a mystery and spiritual wisdom in 1 Corinthians 2. So go back to 1 Corinthians, this time chapter 2. And I begin reading in verse 6. Paul says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this, sorry, a wisdom not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are being abolished, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom which has been hidden, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, the things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him, but to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the depths of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the depths of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually examined. But he who is spiritual examines all things, and yet he himself is examined by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will direct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now what does he mean by we have the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ revealed to us. We can know God's secret will because he's given it to us in his word. He has revealed that to us. Prior was a mystery, now revealed, given to us. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand that. And understand that revelation because it's spiritually discerned. The natural man is the one who is unconverted, cannot understand these things. That's This is what Paul is saying. So we see the, the relationship between the revelation and the wisdom given by God. And the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and regenerates us in order to help us understand the Word of God. And he illumines our minds to help us understand the Word of God. And Donald Burdick provides a, a nice summary statement for the New Testament concept of a mystery. He says this, a mystery is a divine truth formerly hidden, but now supernaturally revealed to men, which can be fully understood only by the saved individual through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, unquote. So the grace of God abounded to us in wisdom and insight to enable us to understand the revelation he would give us. Why did God want to reveal his will? Now we talk about his will. His will for what? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. The mystery of his will. Why did God? Look at verse 9. Why are God? In, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Why? He tells us. The secret plan of his will was not was something that he desired to give. He purposed to give. He says, according to his good pleasure. It pleased him to reveal his will to his creatures, to those who are part of his family. Uh, as one commentator noted, the secret plan of his will was not given begrudgingly, but with God's pleasure. He pleased to do this. It's part of his design. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. Again, it's a, it's, it's a reason that this is a grace. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. And, and in a sense, this reminds me of what Jesus said in, to his disciples in, in John 15, 15. Stay with me. John 15, 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see the elevation Jesus just gave his disciples? In a certain sense, they're slaves. Just like in a certain sense, all Christians are slaves of God. Slaves to righteousness. But he's saying, no longer do I call you slaves, I call you friends. Because I'm revealing my will. Everything the Father has given me to do, I'm, t- I'm telling you. Here's, here's the plan, I'm laying it out. Now, he takes that thought to Ephesians 1. So when, when Ephesians 1 tells us that it was God's good pleasure to reveal his will, that is an indirect way of acknowledging you're in the family. 
And God wants his family to know what he's doing. He doesn't want his family in the dark. He doesn't want his sons and daughters in the dark as to what is is his will. He wants you to know. It was the Father's good pleasure to reveal his secret plan to you. You could say in a collective sense, but also in an individual sense. It's his good pleasure to call you, to um, adopt you as sons, to redeem you, and to reveal, to give you wisdom and insight and reveal his will to you. That's his will. Now, let's go right into the next point because it's so closely tied with the second point. So the the first two blessings are are this the blessing of wisdom and insight and the blessing of revelation of a secret counsel. But the third is this. You are blessed by God's summation of all things in Christ Jesus. You are blessed by God's summation of all things in Christ. Really, the knowledge that, that this is going to happen. There in verse 10, Paul says, for, for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. Now, the little preposition for connects back to to what's come before that. What and it connects to which he purposed in him. In in verse nine, he says, "His good pleasure he revealed the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of times." Now, now, what did the Father purpose in him? That in him is in Christ. What did the Father purpose? This is what he's revealing to us for an administration. What does the word administration mean? Some some translations might have dispensation. What, but administration is a better translation. What what is what is the Lord revealing here? What is God revealing? It points to a governing body for an administration of the fullness of the times. An administration speaks about a governing body. We we use it, we use that term that way. In our everyday language, we speak of the Biden administration or we speak of the Trump administration. Whether you like the president or not, that's not the issue. The issue is that's a valid term to speak about the governing body of this nation. This is what God is talking about. For an administration of what? Of the fullness of the times. What does this mean? Well, when, when as one scholar noted, when fullness is used with the concept of time, it has the I- idea or state, it has the idea of the state of being full in the sense of completeness or having reached its goals. So the fullness of the times isn't necessarily, it's not a chronological marker. It is a marker of the fullness of the times, the completion. God, meaning it's, it's when history is brought to its completion point. When God is done working the way that he is working now, then this will occur, this administration, this administration of whom? Of, of Christ. So the fullness of the times refers to the perfect time in God's plan. When God considers it perfect and complete, these things will happen. Uh, a similar term, fullness of the time, uh, Paul uses fullness of the times, but it, he uses fullness of the time in Galatians 4, 5. I'll read that to you just, just so you get a sense of that com- uh, that fullness means completion. And here I'm just going back to Galatians 4, beginning at verse 1. He says, Now I say, as long as an heir is a child, he does not differ at all from the slave, though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and stewards until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were enslaved under 
the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. It's that fullness. At the perfect time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. At the perfect time, God will send his son and, and to, to administer the, that, that end, to, to be the administration. This will be the administration of Jesus at the end, at this time. And just looking at these, the way that, that Paul writes this can tell you that no man knows that day. We know that from other passages. No man knows the day when this is going to happen. So anybody that starts setting dates, um, just write them off completely. They do not. The only way that someone could do that, if it were truly revealed, they could tell you the characteristics of that age, right? Specifically, but that's not going to happen because God has not revealed that. This isn't about dates. This is about bringing world history to its culmination. And God knows the date, but the date's not the important thing. It, it's the it's what's going on on the earth. And it's it's really the completion. In a sense, the completion of the church, the, the times of the Gentiles, meaning the time of the church, that is what the Lord is, is looking for and marching history forward to. So, so just the putting this together, the Father purposed for Christ to have an administration of the fullness of times. Now, what does that mean exactly? What is that going to look like? Well, it's kind of interesting that the Holy Spirit anticipated our asking that question, because the next phrase, now if you notice in the LSB, there's a little phrase, that is, right? that is italicized because it's added by the translators to help you understand that what comes next is an explanation of the administration of the fullness of times. So the administration of the fullness of times, that is, and here's the explanation, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth in him. What does it mean, the summing up of all things in Christ? Well, to sum, sum up, you, you, you know that in general, when you sum up a point, uh, when, a, when a, a lawyer has been making his case, he's been detailing all the facts to support his client. And sometimes if it's a big case, those facts, the presentation of all those facts goes on for days and days and days and days. But at the end of it, he summarizes, he provides his closing argument, he summarizes everything to try to help the jury make a decision for his client. So that's the idea of summarizing. So here, that's the same word. Everything is going to be summarized up in Christ, the summing up of all things in Christ. Paul uses it with this idea in Romans 13.9. And I'll just, I'll read that to you. It's Romans 13.9. There, Paul says, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this word. That's the same word. Summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the whole, the, the second half of the, of the law of God, of the commandments, that God gave all regarding to, to human relationships, all of those laws can be summed up by one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. So too, in the same way, everything, all things are going to be summed up in Christ. Everything. 
And lest we think that um, that there's somehow something left out, he says all things, all things. And again, what, is, what does it mean that the Christ has sum up everything? It means he's the focal point of everything. He's the focal point. Now he is the head of the church. He is our focal point. But in case you haven't noticed, he's not the focal point of the world, is he? There's a lot who live in rebellion to him. Governments deny him. Work against his kingdom. This is speaking of a time when everything focuses on Christ. Where he is the head of all. The Lord of all. And, and notice how Paul elaborates on the meaning of all things. Lest we misunderstand him. He really wanted to emphasize this. Look at verse 10. He says, summing up of all things in Christ. Sometimes the word all doesn't mean like comprehensively all. But look what he does. All, he says, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. Things in the heavens, things on the earth. What is he doing? It's like taking as far of a wide of a reach as he can possibly get. Should go this way, heavens and earth. Whatever is down below and whatever is up above, Everything is summed up in Christ. That's the extreme. It's like saying our free, our sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. So so is He forgiven our sins against us? That's an extreme. This is even broader, from the earth to the heavens, the created cosmos, everything, angels, humans, animals, the earth, the planets, the solar systems. Everything that we haven't even discovered yet out in space, all will be focused on Christ. Totally different environment than what we have now. This is the time that what Paul speaks about is the time uh, uh, where God will fulfill his promise that the Father gave to his Son. That we read about in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 9. Therefore, God highly, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Notice there, Paul's again, tying in the the idea of heaven and earth, everything. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved, but that means Christ, even Christ's enemies will have to acknowledge that he is Lord. They will bow the knee, not in worship. They will bow the knee nonetheless. Because he rules over them. And they will recognize his authority. Not in, Again, not in a, a worshipful way. So the summing up of all things in Christ cannot refer to the victory that he won on the cross. Some people will point to that. that that's, that's when everything was summed up in Christ. No, that's just a foretaste. A foretaste. Because though he rules victorious as Lord, now there's much of this world that is not brought into subjection. That is not... Focusing on him that is not in submission to him. Ultimately, the summing up of all things refers to the eternal state. But, but again, Paul's not laying out the process. He's not laying out all the details. He's just telling you, this is the end. This is the end. This is why we are called Christians. And, and, and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit aren't offended by that. God has chosen the focal point of our faith and religion to be in Christ. Everything is going to be summed up in Christ. Everything is going to bow its knee before Christ. Christ is going to do this. Now, how is he going to do this? We can look at other passages of Scripture to see that. 
I think Paul speaks of the, of the summation of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going a lot back to 1 Corinthians. There's some, there's some parallels there. 1 Corinthians 15 and talking about the resurrection. Just look with me, if you would, at verses 20 through 28. Speaking about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. Now, just pause for a minute. This isn't an eschatology lesson. But it says he's going to hand over the kingdom. This isn't just rushing us into the eternal state. There's a kingdom that our Lord will rule over that he's going to hand over to his father. Pay attention to this. He will hand over the kingdom to God and the father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then even the son himself will be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. I don't exactly know what that looks like for the son to be subjected to the father in that sense in worship. But the point here is that the son is going to rule. He's going to have a kingdom. He's going to put all his enemies under his feet. And that 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 kingdom of peace as the prince of peace, he will rule and give that kingdom to the father. So ultimately, all glory goes to the father. You can read about more of this like in Revelation 20 to get some of the details of what, what's going on here. But, but just know that there is, is a kingdom. Even in these passages that don't specifically talk about, give us a lot of details of the eschatology, our Lord wants us to put these details together so we'll understand the end. In particular, the end is all summarized in Christ so that he gives it to the Father. So, Know that knowledge of these things is a, is a blessing to us. Uh, ultimately, it's what the Father wants us to know. The Father wants you to know that the, the future is absolutely certain. Everything will be summed up in Christ. It's His administration that will rule. So we've looked at three hundred blessings. The blessing of God's gift of wisdom and insight. God's gift of revelation. And God's, God's gift is of, of the summation of all things in Christ. Just think about that, the, the summation of all things in Christ. I mean, that's everything. That's every unjust act is made just. Every disappointment that you ever had is, is remedied. Or you don't even remember it. Everything that's in rebellion to God is brought into subjection to God. Every part of, of your own rebel heart that sometimes disobeys God, well, he's going to rule there too. You won't have any rebellion in your life. He's going to rule over it all. And what a, what a blessing that is. 
Now, if you were an investor and you knew with absolute certainty that a new upcoming company was going to hit the new latest technology gadget gizmo and their stock was going to shoot up massively, you knew that beyond a doubt and you had the money to invest, what would you do? You'd invest. God's told you the end. All things are going to be summarized in Christ. Christ is the focal point. Invest your life in him. And what I mean by that is believe in him, that he's your Lord and Savior. Because you're either going to bow to him as as your Savior and Lord, or you're going to bow to him as their conquering king. Either way, you're going to bow. So why would you not invest? Why would you not trust your life to him? And believers, for you, realize that since he is the summation of all things, the focus of our life has to be on pleasing him and doing what he wants us to do, living the way that he wants us to live, applying his word for his glory. And what is he doing? Well, he's doing a lot of things, but primarily he's building the church. So be involved with your local church. Be involved in ministry. Be involved in evangelism. These are the investments we make now that pay dividends later because everything does sum up in Christ. He he will rule over all. And another way that these things are blessings is it helps us not to fret about the future. Trust God's word and bank on the future because your future is secure in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you for the multiplied blessings, for giving us all the blessings in heavenly places, all things in Christ. Lord God, we just thank you for your great love which is poured out upon us, the grace which so abundantly, super abundantly, you poured out upon us in Christ. Lord God, help us to contemplate and understand these things. Help us to keep these things in mind as we go about our, our lives this week, even today, that we would make wise choices that are in alignment with your kingdom and your will, that are in alignment with the rule of Christ, the alignment of all things under Christ is yet in the future. And we praise you that you have revealed these things to us and we praise you that you will do these things, that one day we will live in a kingdom of perfect peace. We will live in a utopia because Christ will be our Lord and our King and you will be with us. Now what, a, what an amazing thought that is, that your home will be among men and that there will be no need of the sun for the light of God will shine forth among us. And we can't even comprehend that, but we accept these things as truth revealed to us through the holy prophets and ultimately through your spirit. Lord, we just praise and exalt you for your work of grace in our lives. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.